All right, grab a Bible. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13 this morning. Um, I will read out loud, and it will be on the screen. You feel free to follow along your own Bibles, so I hope you brought with you. If you don't have one, you're good, though, because we got the words on the screen for you. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. All right, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The Word of God. Praise be the Lord. All right, we're continuing our study this morning of 1 John today, and we're coming to the close of the end of the book. We'll only have one more week, uh, and it won't even be me. It'll be Ben Weber in two weeks uh, finishing out 1 John uh, for us. But the, the, the theme of 1 John has been assurance, and that there, John is giving us three tests, three tests throughout the book, and he kind of circulates, he comes back to each of these texts, tests, and sometimes he mixes them up and, and shows them together to us. But three tests are pretty, pretty, pretty much this. There's a doctrinal test, and it usually goes like this. Do you believe in Jesus? The moral test, which is are you obeying God's commands? If you obey God's commands, you can have greater assurance that the salvation of God is within you. And lastly is the relational or the social test, which is are you loving one another? You love God's people. And so each of these three tests are repeated on numerous occasions throughout 1 John. Now we come this morning to again a repeat of sorts of the doctrinal test, the profession of faith test in Christ Jesus. But this test, this, this passage goes about it a little bit differently. Rather than focusing on the test of our faith, John is actually giving us a defense of the faith. He's saying, you have believed in Jesus, and now I'm actually going to give you a defense of that belief. I'm going to hold up a defense that your testimony is true and right. And what we say about Jesus is true and right. This morning, I want to articulate this and kind of set it up in this way. If you can imagine, we live in a college town or a university town. And at universities, people like to have debates, don't they? They set up kind of the atheist and the Christian, the Muslim and the Christian, the Republican and the Democrat. And they say, fight. And then we're all supposed to go, huh, that was interesting. And we're all supposed to learn from the various uh, forms of, of debate. And, and that is actually the kind of the scene I'd like to set up for you this morning. That what John is doing in this text is trying to provide us assurance for our profession of faith. That Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Is the one who is the Savior of our sins. Is indeed in somewhat like a college debate. And there are two groups in this debate. John himself. And the second group, we could use the term the proto-gnostic group. Now, Listen. I mean, 
you've got to have a proto-gnostic group on the campus at West Georgia, right? We have every other small group that represents everything, right? Those who like to wear blue shoes group is represented, I'm sure, at the campus. There are those who like to walk backwards. That's a a, a group. Well, in John's day, there was what was called the proto-gnostics. They didn't call themselves this, but proto means before. It was an early form of a theology that was going to begin to take on great shape in the early part of the church, that was actually becoming a threat to the church and to the apostles' teaching. And the other side of it is John himself. John himself, who is defending. And the question of the debate is this. You know, like you go to a debate, and there's a key question that everyone is trying to answer. And the question is this. When was Jesus the Christ? Was Jesus the Christ the entirely, entire time of his life? Was Jesus merely a man when he died? Was God upon him and indwelling him and a part of him at his baptism? Now, you might understand, look at this and go, huh, what, is, what are these questions? Well, I'll get to that in just a second. But that is what is going on here today. There is a debate going on that John is having with this group, this proto-Gnostic group, who are coming in and trying to sway the early church away from right belief about Jesus. And so, in defending the faith is what we're going to look at this morning. John has four points in defending the faith and articulating as he gets up in this debate and in his defense. And he articulates, in defending the faith, he articulates four things. First is this, is the issue of his defense. The second He provides the witnesses for his defense. Third, he gives us the logic of his defense. And fourth, he provides us the implications of the defense. First, let's look at the issue of his defense. What is it that he is debating about here? What John is seeking to do at the very beginning is seeking to anchor the person of Jesus Christ in history in order to reject these false teachings that are going on in the church. Here is the false teaching that is beginning to root, take root amongst false teachers that are trying to invade and sway people in the church. And it's this, that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was not the son of God, or at the very least, that God came to indwell Jesus as the Christ, beginning at his baptism, but that he left Jesus before the crucifixion. Do you understand you see, at least at, at plain language, what they're, what they're saying. They're saying that Jesus, the Son of God, did not die on the cross. Because the belief system of this group is saying, what they believe is that it, God would not, one, they have a hard time believing that God would stoop and join himself and become a man, take on true flesh, but that he would simply kind of be around this man, Jesus. He kind of would affect the way he lived, The second thing is they believe that there's no way that God would stoop to take on manhood and then allow that man to die. There is no way that this would happen, but this is actually what the gospel teaches, that Jesus Christ, the man, was God, God in the flesh, and that that man, Jesus, was baptized, and that man, Jesus, also went to a cross and died for our sins. Now, you ask the question, my goodness, where in the world is that in the text? Verses, five, verses six, it was right, right where he, he says, coming out of the gate, it says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. You see, the false teaching would say that, G, that God himself came to affect Jesus at the baptism. 
This, this Jesus was such a good fellow that God came down and kind of began to really affect Jesus' life and to kind of control his actions in some way. But then he left Jesus at the cross. The water represents his baptism and the blood represents the cross is what John is communicating. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the God-sent Savior, the one who is God himself. He is not just the Christ at the baptism, but he's also the Christ at the cross. That's what John is communicating. So this Son of God is identified in the water and blood, in the suffering, suffering and agony, not simply in the beauty and the joy of his baptism, but also in his crucifixion. The deity of Christ, what John is saying, did not depart Jesus, the man Jesus, at the crucifixion, but rather the crucifixion is the very reason why the divine Son came. If you say that Jesus is not God, then you have undercut the whole reason why Jesus came. You've undercut the gospel. And so I ask this question, why would it be such a big deal to John that Jesus is indeed fully divine on the cross? Why is that so important? Because to say that Jesus was not fully man and fully God is to say this. It undercuts the power of the gospel and the very reason Jesus came. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And John, whenever Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the cross. He said, should I ask God the Father to save me from this hour? No, the very reason I came is to die. If Jesus, and this is the implications theologically, if Jesus was merely one of us, it would be impossible for him to die for others. If all Jesus was was a mere man with your sinfulness and your sinful characteristics, he could not die for your sins. Why? Because he would only merely be dying for his own sinfulness. We needed a perfect one, one born of God, one born of a perfect, righteous God in order to die for our sins. Because he would come, if he was simply born of man, if he had a sinful flesh, then he would have to merely die for his own sins. He could not die for yours. But if Jesus was simply God and not man, then he could not have died for us either. It is only because he became a babe, because he became a man, because he took on flesh that he could represent us. What we needed in order to have salvation is we needed some one who would enter in and become our representative. This is kind of a, a high-level theological understanding. Jesus is called the second Adam. Now, this is taking on the whole story of the Bible. In Genesis 1, you know that the first man is a man named Adam. And God came to Adam, and he said this. We're going to make a deal. If you obey me, you will have eternal life, and all those who are born of you will be, have, will be righteous and have eternal life with you. He is the representative of all mankind. Adam sins. Adam falls. What happens to all the rest of us? We all fall. We all enter into sin. None of us are righteous. And therefore, none of us can have eternal life. Therefore, what God says is my solution is I will send a second Adam. His name will be Jesus. But he will not be no mere man. He will be both man and he will be God. He has to be man in order to represent man. But he has to be God in order to be a perfect man. I know this is dizzying and difficult. But Jesus is the second Adam who comes to be our representative, one who understands our sorrows, a one who understands the difficulty of living in this life, of having a weak body, 
but he's also perfect. He is sinless. He cannot sin. If he is not both man and fully man and fully God, then he cannot be the Savior. That is why this is such a big deal to John. This is why he is writing to defend this issue. John is dogmatic about this because if you get rid of Jesus' deity or you get rid of Jesus as a man, then you've got rid of Jesus as the one who can save you from your sins. So that's the issue at hand that John is defending. Second, John says, all right, that's the issue. I want to make sure that you as the church, as you profess faith in Jesus, that you understand that there is good reason There is good reason to believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the reason is this. He says, I have three witnesses before you. Three witnesses are three scenes that testify to the truth of who Jesus was. Look at verse 6 and 7 and 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit is one. And the water and the blood. And these three agree. Three witnesses. Let's take the second two together. Witness one and witness two are the water and the blood. Now, as I said before, this is a reference to an odd reference. But a reference, nonetheless, is a reference to Jesus' water baptism and to his crucifixion. Jesus, what John is saying here, is that both at Jesus' baptism and at the cross... God himself provided divine attestation. God himself testified that Jesus is my son. That's what he said. He didn't simply say Jesus is a good man who I'm going to affect. He said Jesus is my son. Now this is really important. What do zebras give birth to? Zebras. What do apple trees give, give birth to? Apples. Who does God give birth to? God. It's not necessarily birthing, but he begats. And if God, if someone is the son of God, they are indeed God himself. They come with all of God's character and all of God's nature. And there's two places in particular that John is saying that God himself comes down and he testifies as to who Jesus is. At Jesus' baptism and at his crucifixion. Let's look first at the baptism. The baptism, Jesus comes down in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. And it says this. Here's the scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it not be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And here's the attestation from God. And behold, a voice from heaven said this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God said, this is my son. The voice of the Father said, this is my son. And in so doing, he's echoing both the Psalms and Isaiah. Jesus did not become the son of God at his baptism. God came down and declared that Jesus was his son at his baptism. That is an important distinction. Jesus was the Son of God, and the testimony of the water is the testimony along with the divine voice that says, this one, this one is man. You can see it. He's in front of you. He's a man, but he's also fully God in that he is my Son. Now, there are two. These events, Jesus' baptism and the cross, are then linked in John's mind. Not only does God come and attest about Jesus' deity at his baptism, we also see it attested to at his crucifixion. Look at Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54. 
And behold, right after this is at the death of Jesus, Jesus dies, it says he gives up his last breath, and it says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised up. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, what? Truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. Just like at his baptism, there is a divine testimony here. A divine testimony that comes in the form of a curtain tearing, and the rock shaking, and in people being risen from the dead. It is God from heaven attesting, and these signs saying, this was my son. And then the voice of God is articulated to the centurion that says, surely this was the Son of God. There are witnesses there. This is a Roman centurion communicating this. This is not a crazy person. A Roman centurion communicating that after seeing these signs, that these things point to the fact that this one who just died was a man who was the son of God. The son of God is identified in water and blood. He is the son of God indeed. He is God himself come down and taking on flesh. Now there's the third witness, and that is the spirit's. What is meant by the Spirit's testimony? The Spirit, we have these objective witnesses in the water and the blood. Physical things. You can hear the voice. You can see the attestations. But what we have in the Spirit is one who comes to us subjectively and speaks to us of the truth of these things. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and the Holy Spirit will lead you to all truth. And the main job of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says that the Spirit will have in John 16 is to point back and point to the truth of who Jesus is. So that's what John is saying. That while we have these two objective witnesses with the voice of God and the signs of God crying out, attesting to the deity of Christ, we also have the Spirit of God subjectively coming into our hearts and witnessing to us the truth of Jesus' deity. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. I mean, God speaks to you of this testimony. In Romans 8, it says that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. When the Spirit comes, he will show you the truth. He will point to you the truth of who Jesus really was. And he will say, this man, he is, this Jesus, is the Son of God. If a person believes in God, they trust in who Jesus is, as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, that person has the work of God's Spirit testifying within their hearts. Do you have this experience? Have you had this experience in your life? To feel the, feel the voice of God attesting in your heart and your mind that what you're hearing in the word of God, as, as difficult as it is for us in the modern mind to say, oh my goodness, there's a man who was God. That the spirit of God saying inside of you, yes, this is true. That Jesus was indeed the son of God. This is the experience of so many as they attest to their testimonies. That in one moment they did not believe it and then they go and they hear God's word and the spirit goes out and they find that their hearts are warmed and their minds are open to the truth of this reality. It is part of John Wesley's testimony, the great founder of the Methodist church. And he says this, that he went one night, he was struggling spiritually. In fact, he would attest that he was not even a believer until this night. And he wandered, was wandering the streets and entered into a service um, at a little place called the Aldersgate Chapel. And there was a man, he did not know the name of the man, who was reading the preface to Martin Luther's exposition of Romans. 
And he found this. He writes this later on in his diary. About a quarter before nine, while I was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Have you had the experience of the Spirit of God warming your heart to the truth of the Spirit testifying of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you? This is the truth. This is also what happens in Luke chapter 24 and what is known as the, the uh, road to Emmaus account. And when Jesus, after, soon after his resurrection, walks with two men and they're studying God's word together and he's teaching them and showing them how he is the fulfillment. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And then he leaves them and what do the two men say? They say this, were not our hearts strangely warmed warmed as he walked with us and opened to us the words of the scriptures? Have you experienced the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of truth that communicates to us that the claims of the scriptures, that the claims of Jesus himself, of who he was, are indeed true? These three testify and these three agree. It's interesting the juxtaposition between those who testify against Jesus and those who testify for Jesus. You know, Jesus is at his own trial. The Sanhedrin bring um, witnesses to testify against Jesus, don't they? And one of the things that's found in the injustice of Jesus' trial is not a single witness agrees with one another. But what does John go out of his way to say here? Is the testimony of God's word at his baptism, the testimony of God's word at the cross, and the testimony of the spirit inside of us, all three agree, and they are all saying the same thing, that Jesus is indeed the son of God. That's John's argument. That's his defense. Those are the witnesses that he's bringing before us. Well, third, he moves on, and he provides the logic of his defense. He says this, if there are these three witnesses... And they're all saying the same thing. And these three witnesses are all testifying and pointing to what God says about Jesus. Then here's the logic. If you would receive the testimony of man, how much more should you receive the testimony of God? Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. That the person who testifies, that it's not so, many, so much just the amount of people that testify, but also the character of the witness is what matters, right? That if you're a judge and you have a witness who who's, has a, a, a defense or a, a testimony that is really condemning to the person that you're defending, and you, you try to undermine the character of that person to say, they're, they're liars, they're not shown to be truthful, and we can't trust their testimony in this courtroom. And yet what we see John doing here is he's saying, listen, it is no mere man who is testifying about Jesus. It is God himself who is testifying about Jesus. And to believe or to not believe the testimony of God about Jesus is to believe or not believe God himself. And what he says, he goes so far as to say what in verse 10? That if you say that, God, that these things are not true, that you're calling God himself a liar. Because it was whose voice that said Jesus is the son of God at his baptism? 
It was God's voice. It is through God's actions that attest and have provide, provide signs that make the centurion say, surely this was the Son of God. It is God's voice in the Spirit who testifies to your heart as to who Jesus was. And so this is the witness. The logic of John's defense is this, is there are witnesses. And all three witnesses point back to this, that it is the voice of God that they testify to. All three witnesses say, God says, God says, God says that Jesus is my son. Well, you may ask, even on this, if you're a more skeptical person, perhaps you should be, which is this, how can we trust God's word, or John's word, that God is the one who indeed testified at the baptism of Jesus and at the cross? Why should we believe John? Well, here's, a, here's the reason why you should believe John. Because Jesus, at his baptism, he was not baptized in a bath at a private home, was he? He was baptized publicly, wasn't he? In fact, John's, John the Baptist was baptizing hundreds and thousands of people, which means there were probably hundreds or thousands of people who were there who witnessed Jesus' baptism, who heard the voice of God proclaiming over Jesus who he was. Now, if you wanted to destroy Christianity in the early centuries, what would you have to do? All you, what would you have to do? All they had to happen, have to happen is somebody who was there show up and say, no, I didn't hear the voice of God. This isn't true. And yet we have no testimony of, this, of the sorts. And the same way at Jesus' crucifixion, when we have the, the earthquakes and those being risen from the dead, and we have the curtain of the temple tearing, and we have the centurion saying, surely this man was the son of God. Were there just a few people there? Was Jesus crucified in secret? Absolutely not. He was crucified in front of hundreds. In fact, Jesus was crucified during the Passover week, which means Jerusalem at that time probably swelled to possibly over a million people in the community. Now, this is not a large community. This is not New York City. They, this is a million people crammed into an area that is like far smaller than Carrollton. It's more like the size of the downtown square area. That's how big Jerusalem is. A million people in that kind of area. You would think... That at some point, if you were there and you wanted to destroy Christianity in the first couple of years, and the, the, the testimony and the witnesses of John and the other apostles, all you have to do is go, no, the curtain wasn't torn. The centurion didn't say that. I didn't see anybody raised from the dead, and yet we have no testimony of the like. And therefore, not only do we have God's testimony and John saying that these, three, these witnesses, the God's, God's voice at his baptism, God's voice at the cross, and the spirit of God in our hearts all testify to this truth, but not only that, will we have historical accuracy behind it. That there are those who are not coming and communicating that these things are wrong, that these things are lies. And therefore, what this means and what John is going to do is he's going to turn, the, turn his defense and face us now. And he's going to face us in the middle of this debate and say there are implications for this. Similar to there's a book by, the name, by a guy named Josh McDowell. It's an apologetic book where he looks at the, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, the evidence of Jesus' life, and his crucifixion. And the name of that book is this. It is this. It's an evidence that demands a verdict. That's what John is communicating here is that there are three witnesses, there are voices, the voice of God, and there are hundreds and thousands who hear this and testify to it. And therefore, it is evidence that demands a verdict by us. As the people in the audience who are hearing the debate between John and these people, these other, these proto-gnostics, he's turning us to say, you have to make a decision about whether you're going to reject the voice and the testimony of God or whether you're going to receive the testimony of God. And that's our fourth point which is John articulates the implications of receiving or rejecting God's testimony. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us, that God gave us eternal life, 
and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Verse 13, and I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What does John say are the implications of this? The implications of receiving God's testimony about Jesus or rejecting God's testimony about Jesus. The implications are a matter of life and death. This is important because the consequences, if the consequences of rejecting God's testimony is he says very clearly is you do not have eternal life. Will you ignore the divine testimony? Will you ignore the voice of God at Jesus' baptism, the voice of God at the cross, the voice of God crying out within you by the Spirit? Unbelief says this. The rejection of God's testimony says this. I will not take God at his word. That's what unbelief is. It is to cause, it says in verse 10, God a liar. This is the nature. We tend to think of unbelief as just kind of being this kind of very passive thing. Well, as if it's morally neutral to, unbelief, to not believe. But what John would say is, no, unbelief is a moral issue. To not believe is to call God himself a liar. John Stott, who's one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, says this. Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. It is sinfulness that lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes to the Godhead falsehood. You're calling the divine one a liar. And this is what John is arguing. If you believe that testimony, if you hear the, if you hear the testimony of these people and you don't believe God, the implication is this, is you do not have eternal life. But it is equally important the implications of this, of believing this testimony is equally important, not just for the consequences of saying you don't have eternal life, but because this is a black and white issue. There's no neutral ground. You either don't have eternal life or you do have eternal life. And therefore, if you have, if you've received this testimony, then you have this eternal life. To those who believe, he says, they have the Son and they have life. What does it mean to have the Son of God? We talk, this is an odd language that we kind of use in our parochial kind of term, to have something. To have, you can, and this is, there's a nuance to this. For example, it doesn't mean quite the same thing each time you say, I have a dollar, or I have a cold, or I have a lawyer. Those things are referring to very different things. But to say you have something means it does something for you. If you have a dollar, to have a dollar means it provides for you something that a dollar can buy. If you have a lawyer, he stands for you. To mean you have a lawyer doesn't mean you own him. Doesn't mean you're walking around grabbing hold of him. But to have a lawyer means that he does something for you. And so the question here, when John says, if you have the son, the issue is, what does the son do for you? What does Jesus do for you? What does he stand up and have for you? And the answer is clear for John. If you have the son, you have what? Life. Life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. If you have the son, you have life. Listen, this would be one of the most encouraging exercises you could do as a community group or for your own devotional time. If you want to spend a couple encouraging hours of your life, listen to this. Ask yourself these questions. What is Jesus? What is this Jesus thing? What can Jesus do for me? What did he come to do? What has he promised to do? And if I have Jesus, I have all those things that he promised to do for me. And John sums all the things that Jesus promised to do for us as this, as life. And in fact, this is why Jesus came, right? In John 10, not this first John, but John, the gospel of John says this. John 10 verse 10, Jesus says, I came so that you may have life and life abundantly. 
This is the issue. What is eternal abundant life? If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Well, it's endless in its implications and meaning, right? To say you have eternal life. But if I could connect this idea, this idea of life and abundant life to what we've been talking about to the idea of testifying today. An abundant and eternal life is this. This is getting down to the core issue this morning. To hear the voice of God, which testifies about Jesus, now testifies the truth about you. To have eternal life, to have abundant life, not just waiting for you into heaven, but to have abundant life now, is to hear the same voice that testifies about the truth of Jesus, now says the truth about who you are. And what is it that he says about you? The abundant, the, at your baptism, what does the voice of God say over you? This is important. We're going to connect to what he says to Jesus. He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says, you are mine. You are bought with a price. Listen, when you are sacrificing, when you are engaging in the sorrows and sufferings of this world in order to advance the kingdom of God, what does the voice of God say over you? He says, you are mine. At at the Spirit of God, what does the Spirit of God do? We already looked at this in Romans 8, verse 16 says this. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. In other words, the implication is this. To have abundant life and to have eternal life is to hear the voice of God speak over you the fact that you are his. And that is the truth. And there is no one and every else who would say something else is a liar. Believing the testimony about Jesus If you believe that, if you believe God's voice and God's word and God's testimony about who Jesus is, you also get to hear his voice about who you are. These things are linked. You cannot have one without the other. If you fail to believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you fail to believe the testimony of God, this is how we want, I'll say in the modern church is what we want. We want all the blessings of hearing the voice of God without wanting the doctrinal nuances of actually hearing God's voice about what he says about Jesus. But if you will not believe about what he says about Jesus, then the, what he says about you, you don't get that, that message. But if you believe what he says about Jesus, but you don't believe what he's saying about you, then there is a disconnect. There's a disconnect. See, if Jesus, if God himself is testifying to who Jesus is, and if God himself speaks the truth about who Jesus is, then he also speaks the truth about who you are. And he says wondrous things about you, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says you are forgiven. He says you are my child. He says I will never leave you or forsake you. Now here's the question for us. If you believe what he says about Jesus, do you also believe what he says about you? Do you believe both these things? Hearing the testimony of God is the difference between eternal life and death. It is the difference between a life in which you're simply scraping from the crumbs of this world or you're living with the abundance of having the voice of God being the thing that you listen to and is the one that directs your life. You see, here's the reality is there are witnesses in your life and there's testimony in your life and they are liars. This is the truth of it. They testify that you are worthless that you're not made an image, that you have no value, that you're not forgiven, that your sins are too great for God to overcome. And what you can say is those things are lies. Those things are lies. Because I have a voice that is greater, that speaks louder, that testifies to the truth of who I am in Christ Jesus. So who is it? Who is it who gets to hear the voice of God? 
who gets to hear those great promises of God, those assurances over us. It is to those, he says, who believe. And so that is the question that John is offering today. Here's the defense. And now he points to you. He looks to you as the audience of debate and says, do you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe the testimony of God about his son and therefore also get to hear the testimony of God about you? Let's close there. Gracious God, I, I, I pray that, um, Lord, this one is not an easy one. Lord, we start talking about things like blood and water and the testimony of God, and we get confused in a hurry. God, where there is confusion, I pray that, Lord, you would strike through with the truth. That, God, where I was unclear, that the Spirit would speak more clearly. That the Spirit would testify even of difficult things to trust in and believe, things that we cannot see in front of us, but where we simply have to take the testimony of others in a Bible that is hundreds and thousands of years old, and we have to take those testimonies and we have to believe it. Lord, I pray that in that moment, Lord, that difficulty of that, the challenge of that, that your spirit would affirm and confirm the truth of what we read. And Lord, not only that, we need not only that confirmation, but we also need the confirmation of what you say, not only just about Jesus, but what you say about us. Because the reality is, is we are a people who are so easily, who so easily listen to the lies of the world. Our ears are in tune to other things. It's why it's so difficult for us to hear and to believe. But gracious God, I pray that you direct our ears. Give us new ears to hear, new hearts to receive. That the Spirit would scream loudly within us as to who we are as sons and daughters of the King. Gracious God, I pray that our testimony about Jesus, even that would be an affirmation. So that, Lord, even as we testify to who Jesus is, because of that, we would be able to hear your testimony about us all the more clearly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.